It is Wednesday, September the 28th, 2022. We welcome you into episode 54 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's a production of John Boy Media, and it is pitching talk. Each and every week we do it, always with the five-time World Series champion and the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, the research ace, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle. This episode is brought to you by Bear Burger. And this week, we're going to be having on Tristan McKenzie of the AL Central winning Cleveland Guardians with this episode. It is the last full week of the regular season. David, James, kind of tough to believe. We only have about eight days or so left of the regular season. Doesn't feel like it to me. What about you guys? I'm ready. <laughs> it's been, it's been uh, you know, a long year, a lot of travel back on the full schedule this year for me personally, but uh I feel good about the entire season. Feel good that the Yankees have, have turned and turned it around and righted the ship. And it looks like August August is a blip. But yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes you get into September, it starts to run pretty quickly once you get through the dog day. So, so I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. The dog days were dragging, but I feel like September has flown by, and now we're getting ready for the playoffs. This has been a great season for baseball and baseball fans. It's been a great season for us. It's been a great season for the Yankees. It's been a great year top to bottom, and now we're going to get into the sprint to the playoffs. Yeah, se- September zipped through in every facet of, of life, like not just baseball here. I felt like last week was Labor Day, and we're, now we're looking ahead to next week being October, and you have everyone playing that one series that was kind of tacked on at the end because of the lockout and things getting delayed here. But here we are. I mean, the postseason is right around the corner. And we're going to get into some pitching topics surrounding some playoff teams this week. Like I said, we'll, we'll chat with Tristan McKenzie, who's had a fantastic year for a division-winning team. And uh, the, the Guardians, I think, are showing all the receipts right now that they, that they kept from everyone who doubted that they could be a playoff team this year. Uh, I think if you go back here on this podcast, you'll probably hear me say before the season, I thought Cleveland was, was going to finish last in the division. I'm, I'm glad I was wrong there because the Guardians play such a different brand of baseball than everybody else. And uh, they've, been, they've been enjoyable to watch here in 2022. So we'll, we'll get into Guardians talk with Tristan. We'll get into this week in pitching history. We have three up, three down as well. But first, it is the opener. Every week, David starts us off with something on his mind. David, what do you have for us this week as we get ready for the final full week of the regular season? Well, we're in it already, but what do you have for us? Well, you know, now that Albert Pujols has hit his 700 home run, uh, front and center still is Aaron Judge. Uh, obviously, uh, putting his historical season into context for me is just a fascinating uh, endeavor to try to figure out where, how good is this year he's having? What are we watching here, Shaq? I mean, what are we really seeing here? And there's so many different ways to slice it and cut it and compare it to different eras. And, you know, James and I have done this and the pre-integration era, pre-Negro leagues allowed to be playing, playing, you know, alongside Babe Ruth in the twenties. You go up through, uh, you know, the, the, the Mickey Mantle and the, uh, the great years that Mantle had in the 50s and then on up through and, you know, Ted Williams, Carl Yaskrimski had a great year back in 1967. You know, how do we compare this? How do we put it into context? And it's a great uh, writer, Joe Pasnoski, uh, wrote a great article today about Aaron Judge saying that uh, he could be just one of 14 players that he's found in research going back throughout the entire history of the game that would win the triple slash line plus lead the league in home runs. So the triple slash line, obviously batting average, 
on base percentage, slugging percentage, and lead the league in home runs. So, you know, it kind of gives a nod a little bit to on base percentage in there uh, as opposed to the, the triple crown. So they're similar, I guess, in some regards, but still it's just remarkable when you think about what Aaron Judge is doing. You know, it, it's a top 10 all-time season. And if you want to talk about the steroid era and try to put that into context, if you want to talk about the high velocity that, that pitching the judge has to face now, the m- many more relievers, many different types of pitchers that he has to face. I mean, there's there's lots of ways that we can debate this thing. And I, that's what I love about it. You can debate it no matter, no matter which side of the issue you're on. You know, if, you, if you're an old schooler and you like Babe Ruth, that's fine. If you want to talk about Shohei Otani, we covered that with Mark Gubazai last week. If you want to talk about the steroid era, I get it. Barry Bonds, amazing years. Sure, you can be on both sides of that issue. We can argue that till the cows come home. You know, the PEDs, uh, steroids weren't illegal back then uh, when, when Barry was doing it. So, you know, does he belong in the Hall of Fame? I mean, that's a, that's a whole nother debate to have. But Aaron Judge, without a doubt, I think, as he continues on this quest, is going to come up with at least, at a bare minimum, one of the top 10 greatest seasons of all time. And you could argue, you know, right there with any other season, right at the top. So that, that's what we're watching right now. It's wild that we didn't think there was going to be a, a, triple trown, a triple crown chase or, you know, sabermetric slash line because Judge had a good batting average most of the year. Then he hit 400, 430, 450 for these long stretches. And all of a sudden, he's jumping in front for a batting title. Luis Arise seemingly had that wrapped up for four months. And now Judge is in front in batting average. That'll be a great race down the stretch with Judge, Xander Bogarts, and Luis Arise. And Coney always talk about putting it into context. Judge hitting 315 today in modern baseball, when it's almost never been harder to hit, is all the more remarkable because in 2022, the MLB batting average is 243, which is this, which is right now the fifth lowest batting average for any season in baseball history. 1968, the year of the pitcher is the lowest. Then 1888, 1908, and 1967. So you're talking about the dead ball era, the new dead ball era of, of, the, of the late 60s, and now here we are in another time where it's very difficult to put the bat on the ball and to hit. You have the most powerful hitter also hitting 315. Let's just see if we can get the triple crown. David, I think you put it perfectly. This is probably going to be a top 10 offensive season of all time. And for you guys out there listening, slow that down, maybe rewind it. Don't take that sentence for granted there. Play it back in your head. Think about all the baseball you watch over the course of a season and throughout your lifetime, and you see some standout seasons. But when you say this is a top 10 offensive season all time in the history of the sport, know that you are witnessing something incredibly rare and soak it all in for the last seven or eight days of the regular season here with with Aaron Judge. All right. Let's get into some pitching topics here, guys, because there have been a few developments since last week's episode as it pertains to a couple of title contenders. And let's start with the Atlanta Braves, because this is one of the races that's still going on. The race for the NL East between the Mets and the Braves and Atlanta had placed rookie Spencer Strider on the injured list with an oblique strain. And reports are that there are no guarantees that he's going to be healthy and ready for the start of the postseason. And it's been documented here. He's had one of the best seasons by a rookie starting pitcher in recent memory how big of a hit is this to the Braves 
It's a big hit to my draft. He's one of the guys I drafted in our little uh, postseason draft of the pitchers. So, yeah, it's it's a big hit. He was on a roll, too. Not only did he have a tremendous rookie season, he was getting better. And it looked like he was really coming into tune with the mix of his fastball slider and that tunneling effect that he had perfectly sort of mastered, uh, throwing a little few more sliders along the way. We know he throws gas. We know he throws 100 miles an hour. But he really had that one-two punch going. Uh, he punched out 16, 16 guys, uh, you know, a few starts ago. It looked like, wow, uh, th- this guy's really got it figured out for a rookie. And now all of a sudden, the oblique is a big deal. That's a hard injury to rehab from, uh, to come back to. And then even when you do come back, to really cut it loose. You know, can he, will he have his top end stuff and velocity uh, with that sort of an injury? Uh, it remains to be seen. He's so valuable to the Braves. You don't want to take a chance. Because if there's any compensation at all, then you might compromise his shoulder or his elbow at that point. So you really have to be sure because he's that valuable. And even though you're going to postseason, even though you're going to push it, if there's any way he can pitch, he'll pitch. But on the other hand, he needs some protection because he is that good and that valuable. It's a kind of a double-pronged hit because while they say he should be back for the postseason, this also hinders their chances of catching the Mets in the East. So if he was around to help them jump over New York for the East Division title, that gives them a little more time to get ready for the playoffs. Now it's probably more likely that they end up in a wild card series, which means their postseason run would start earlier, giving him less time to bounce back. With Atlanta's rotation, they're in pretty good shape. You know, they'll be throwing Max Fried in a in a game one, probably in a, in a wild card series, and you know you could you like their chances with him as much as any team with any pitcher. Um, and after that, you know, you have Kyle Wright is outstanding and Spencer, Spencer Strider, if he's back, then maybe it's just a little blip on, on the radar uh, before a long postseason run. But this this does nick their chances of catching the Mets, even though it's only a one game lead right now. The oblique is something that jumps out at me because the the specific injury here, I, I think oblique, I automatically think, all right, uh, six weeks six to eight weeks, like whenever an injury pops up, I see the injury and I associate it with the number of weeks that you can expect that player back. And the timeline doesn't add up for me, but not only that, if say he just can't handle the workload of a starter and maybe you wanted to put him in a bullpen role and I'm just, you know, spitballing here, the oblique kind of dictates like, Hey, it doesn't matter what role you're in. Like it's going to hurt regardless whether or not you're in a longer starters role or if you're trying to kind of bottle up all your energy into that one or two impact inning guy as a reliever, like you're, you're going to throw, it's going to make an impact period. So it doesn't matter what role you're serving. That's, that's what raises the red flag for me. Oblique's kind of tricky at this point in the year with the way the calendar is working out. Definitely a big problem in my eyes for the Braves. I, I don't want to say this because he's been so fun to watch and it's great to see a rookie have so much success. I don't know if we will see Spencer Strider for the rest of the way. I'm kind of pessimistic that we will with, with the nature of oblique injuries. Um, all right. How about the LA Dodgers? They removed Craig Kimbrell from the closers role. If you are LA manager, Dave Roberts, David, which relievers in your bullpen are you giving the ball to in high leverage situations? Oh, geez. I mean, you, you got you to gotta see who's healthy. That There's still another week to go. Uh, you know, Gratterall is a power guy at the end of the game, just came back, has looked 
good uh, since he's been back, but, you know, is he fully healthy? Uh, you know, in the times I've talked to Dave Roberts out there, there's almost seems to be a relief that he doesn't have to worry about just having Kimbrough as his closer and, 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 and not being sure about it at the end. He really believes in the overall depth of their pitching staff. He really is looking forward to mixing and matching and using all of, all of uh, the information that he has at hand to sort of look at those matchups and get it right. And, and depending on which team you're, you're facing, which inning it is, which part of the lineup is up, I think he's really looking forward to that. And he really does believe in the overall depth of his roster. So I don't know if it comes down to specific roles or who he's going to hand the ball to. I think it's more about his overall confidence in just about everybody that he's got down there and that he's looking forward to using it that way, a very modern approach to how you handle the bullpen. And uh, there's almost a relief there, I think, on his part, because he has tremendous respect for Kimbrell, who's almost a borderline Hall of Famer, or certainly has the makings of Hall of Fame numbers if he were to finish on a good note. Uh, so, you know, he's, that, that burden is off of his mind now. He doesn't have to worry about it. He can use Kimbrell however he wants. He doesn't have to give him the ball in the ninth inning uh, regularly. So, I think that, I think it's a relief for Dave Roberts, just from the experience I've had in talking to him. He's really looking forward to handling the bullpen that way. Evan Phillips is more than up to the task, uh, just to highlight one Dodger reliever. But that could be he could end up being needed in the seventh inning in a big spot, and then he gets four outs, and then you bring in someone else for the for the next three. This is a little bit like a situation that the Yankees might end up being in in October where you have all these guys that you rely on and then which one is going to come into which spot and Kevin Cash, uh, Craig Council, that, who have deftly managed bullpens uh, in big pennant races. And in October, they, they talk about out getters, not specifically this guy pitches the ninth, this guy pitches the seventh, this guy's our lefty specialist. It's we are throwing an army of, of relief arms at you and we're going to get you out any which way. And I think that, so like Coney's mentioned, it's a little freeing where you're not penned in saying, okay, I have all these, these innings to work with. And then I have to bring in Kimber who might not even be my best guy into that ninth inning. I think if all the relievers are on board in the bullpen with that mindset where they are looked at and expected to be ready at any moment and be kind of titled as outgetters, like you mentioned, James, I think this could be liberating for all the decision makers the players involved, like you, I couldn't help but draw the similarities between what the Dodgers are going through and what the Yankees are going through with Aroldis Chapman. It's it's kind of fascinating that there's a possibility. Craig Kimbrell, Aroldis Chapman, two of the best relievers we've seen over the last decade plus, they may not be on their post respective teams' postseason rosters, maybe. You know, I don't know if you want to go that far with Kimbrell and the Dodgers, but it is, is a possibility here. Um, but, but, yeah, I think it's a, – a, Part of it is a little liberating for for the teams involved, maybe the pitchers involved too. Less expectations can kind of just go out and perform. Maybe if you're a creature of habit, it bothers you a little bit on on the pitching end. But overall, it, it's a chance for you to kind of just go out there and try and answer the bell in any situation that you're brought into. Not just shoehorn yourself into a role that, unfortunately, you haven't met the expectations of here in in 2022. I, I will say this real quickly too that a wild card is former former Yankee Tom Tommy Canley is back, and uh, he's actually looked kind of good coming back. It, it's taken him a long time to come back, but there's just enough time for him to kind of impress 
And the couple of outings that I've seen him throw, he looked pretty good. He still got that great power changeup, power fastball. He's an interesting guy that uh, sometimes has reverse platoon splits. He can he can get out left-handed batters as well with that changeup. And Tommy Canley's given up one run and has not allowed a hit in all of his September appearances so far. So keep an eye on Tommy Canley there. More Toe on the Slab is coming up. And yes, we are a pitching podcast, but we are going to let you in on a craze that has benefited hitters. I'm talking about win reality. That's the VR baseball training application available on the MetaQuest 2 that gives players access to unlimited game speed reps, no matter where they may be. You can even use your own bat. The win reality pitcher library consists of 600 plus pitchers all the way from 8U to Pro from the release to the spin, the speed, hitters get a chance to study every pitch, then hit it in the real game. Players who train with win reality report 43% more confidence at the plate. It gives players of all levels a variety of workouts that are focused on pitch recognition, timing, and decision-making. And it's used by a lot of major league teams, including a guy by the name of Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, you may have heard of him could win the MVP this year in the National League. It's also used by hundreds of colleges across the nation. Hitters love it. Coaches are raving about it. And parents have loved what it has done for the players' enjoyment of baseball. Players who train with win reality acquire skills seven times faster than traditional training methods. Win reality allows players to train anywhere, anytime against game speed pitches that their coaches and teammates can't replicate at practice. Imagine, especially... Growing up and living and training in the Northeast, trying to find a pitcher that can throw you the type of pitches that you need to develop your game, you don't need that buddy anymore. You can bring them along for the ride if you have that buddy, but when reality takes care of that, you can train in here, improve their game out there. Head to winreality.com backslash slab to sign up today. That's winreality.com backslash S-L-A-B and sign up today. All right, the Mariners, guys, they made news earlier this week. They extended Luis Castillo, five years, $108 million. And the deal could go as high as six years and $133 million with a vesting option. Your initial reaction to when you heard those terms for Castillo and the Mariners hooking up long-term? Seems light. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A great deal for the Mariners. Really great deal for them and what they're trying to do up there and He's on top of his game. I mean, we saw that. He's, he was clearly the best pitcher at the trade deadline. He, there was some question about health and some arm injuries he's had, including this year and how durable he is. But he came back as good as ever. I think right now he's he's peaking. So they just signed a guy under value, as James rightly points out, that is really reaching his peak right now, pitching as well as he almost possibly can. You know, you talk about ceilings and floors. He looks like he's almost right at his ceiling right now in terms of uh, how good he can be, you know, real good to Seattle. Seattle did. Seattle's looking pretty good. That pitching staff up there is pretty dangerous right now. They went all in at the trade deadline. They were able to beat out all the other uh, pursuers and, and, and land their guy Castillo. And now they're, they're further investing in him. And I joked around that. Uh, yeah, it, it does seem like it, it might be a little light, but at the same time, it is similar to it's closer to the Robbie Ray or, or, or Kevin Gosman. Uh, free agent contracts and it's a little different when you're dealing with free agency versus an extension but it's it's in a similar ballpark 
Yeah, I thought it was team friendly. Uh, I can't help but feel like if you are one of those teams that was interested in acquiring Kestu at the deadline and you were in the mix for him too, and you, you saw what he ended up signing an extension for, it stings uh, just a bit. Mainly because a lot of the teams that were shopping for anything so far this season, there hasn't been that that one key return. Maybe Jordan Montgomery at the very beginning and, and through the month of August and a little bit of September, but there really hasn't been that like one impact player that's been traded and has elevated his team uh, to the next level. One other thing that I wanted to touch on here before we get to Tristan McKenzie this week, um, David, reactive pitching, uh, something that jumped out at me watching the Yankee game over the weekend with Garrett Cole on the mound. And, and when I say reactive pitching, I'm kind of talking about the pitches that you make that involve emotion from the result of a previous pitch, maybe in the sequence, maybe earlier in the inning, but there are countless examples of this over time. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm singling Garrett Cole out here, but what he did over the weekend definitely made me think about this in his start on Friday against the Red Sox. He said, he dotted the inside corner on a one-two sinker to Alex Verdugo. It was called a ball by the umpire, Brian Knight. Uh, next pitch, Cole throws a fastball that Verdugo hits out for a home run. And, and Cole took it a step further. He argued with Knight after the inning. He was ejected. But based on your experiences and talking to hitters, how visible is that lack of emotional control from the batter's box when you're facing a pitcher in that situation? Well, yeah, certainly you, the body language is a big part of it. You know, I spent, a, I spent a lot of my career on the bench studying body languages of opposing pitchers and then doing a little bench jockeying or trying to pump up our team and as to exactly what you're talking about. Look at what this guy's doing now. We got him. You can get him right now. You know, just different tea leaves you try to read out there. So it's a great point, Shaq. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing with Garrett Cole is just a frustration of all the home runs he's given up. The guy's having a great strikeout season. He's probably going to break the all-time Yankee strikeout record. Uh, all of his inside numbers really look good except for the home runs. Keeping the ball in the ballpark has been a problem and it's getting to him. He's trying to figure it out. And Garrett Cole is a perfectionist. He goes, he combs through scouting reports. He knows every little tendency of every single hitter he faces. He, he, he has a definitive game plan on how he's going to attack certain hitters based on those weaknesses. And then when it doesn't work, you, you, that's what you see is that frustration come out. And it may be a little bit of misplaced anger, to the umpire there because he gave up another home run on the subsequent pitch. And I talked to him yesterday in Toronto and the, and before the game and talking about those sorts of things. And, you know, I, I tried to impress upon him that sometimes I had years to where it was just your year to give up more home runs. His fly ball to home run rate is over 13% this year, Garrett Coles. That's almost oh well over 2% higher than anybody else's in the, in the big leagues right now. Some of that's random variance. Some of that is, just fly balls leaving the ballpark that normally wouldn't. Some of it, though, is also just maybe the wrong pitch selection, the wrong pitch. And I think that Alex Verdugo, that at-bat that you described, was a perfect example of that. And he admitted it afterwards that he had four or five different options to throw, and he ended up throwing that particular fastball again on top of the, the fastball that didn't get called a strike. So he doubled up with the fastball. Verdugo's a good fastball hitter. So I think he's, he's you're, you're, what you're seeing, Shaq, is a guy who's second-guessing his pitch selection. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. And that, that's a dangerous place to be for a pitcher. That'll cause you to snap at umpires when you start doubting yourself and you start second-guessing yourself about how to put away hit, uh, hitters or particular pitches along the way 
that you shouldn't have thrown or other pitches that you should have thrown. And that's where Garrett Cole is right now. So it's a great pickup on your part. I think it was a little misplaced anger that he went after the umpire there because he gave up another home run. And that's been a problem this year for Garrett Cole. And that, that's the only thing that I see. That start was really good by Garrett Cole, by the way. Eight knuckle curveballs, eight swing and misses out of eight swings. His slider had seven swing and misses. He was off the charts when you look under the hood at his stuff, other than that one pitch to Verdugo. Even the Tommy Pham home run was a late swing and a porch job, almost right down the line at 314. And that's a random variance home run. That's a double in every other ballpark. So that, that's what I mean by home runs per fly balls and kind of the random variance. The Tommy Pham home run was a, was a Yankee Stadium porch job. The Alex Verdugo home run was probably a poor pitch selection. I got to say, I feel a lot better about Garrett Cole moving forward now that you talked to him uh, up in Toronto for sure and just kind of impart that wisdom on it. I'm not, I'm not BSing here. That's, uh, that makes me feel better. If, if you're a Yankee fan, you should feel the same way. But yeah, better to get that experience out now than next month in a big game for, for Garrett Cole. Uh, let's get to our chat with Tristan McKenzie here. Have it a terrific season, terrific breakout season for the Cleveland Guardians as they wrapped up the AL Central Division Championship. 11-11 record, 3.04 ERA, career high in innings pitched, around 180, and he's made 29 starts so far. Tristan McKenzie, breakout pitcher for the Cleveland Guardians, our guest this week on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. So Tristan McKenzie is our guest here on Toe in the Slab this week, and the Guardians just won the division over the weekend, and now, because it happened, uh, the trendy topic is to talk about the Guardians, how they're baseball's youngest team, and how they could be a tough out in the playoffs. Everyone wants a piece of the Guardians. Tristan's uh, kind enough to give us some time here. And Tristan, I think you guys, for the most part of this season, they you know you believe that something like this was attainable. But I heard that during the celebration, you said it really came together right around after the All-Star break that this team really bought into believing they can do something big here. Was there a singular moment either during a game or behind the curtain that kind of sparked that vibe for baseball's youngest team? Uh, so, I mean, I said it, I said in an interview during, during our celebration and it was more along the lines of, I think we played very good baseball. We played our brand of baseball through the first half of the season and we played well. And then kind of coming out into the second half, Tito, Tito talked to us and let us know that, Look, boys, we've been playing well, and you guys, honestly, I don't feel like you've been playing your best baseball. I don't think you guys feel like you've been playing your best baseball, and we agreed. And we were sitting at that point, I think, a couple games out of first place. And I think that's when it became realistic because if Tito's saying it and he's seeing it from the outside looking in, and we, we believe it too, uh, it's more just how can we get to that next step? How can we get to that next level? And how can we really put our best foot forward moving into this next half of the season? Uh, and I think everybody just bought into that and moving forward, I think it's gotten us to this point. David, the Guardians had 16 guys make their season debut, their major league debut, I should say, uh, here in 2022. And now they're going to the postseason. And that's a big storyline, a young team coming together like this. Have you ever been part of a super young team in the clubhouse that didn't really care about their inexperience at the big league level and went out and had success? Uh, I can't really say that I've been on any team that compares to what the Guardians have done this year. I mean, they, they certainly, even though the, the age factor you kind of jumps out at you, it feels like they're, they're more experienced than their age, right? I mean, Christian, Christian's a perfect example of that as he comes, comes into his own. I really felt like 
he's pitching like a veteran pitcher this year. Uh, his walk rate's down, still maintaining above average strikeout rate. Uh, the quality starts the innings that he's pitching and the efficiency that he's showing. The thing that jumps out to me, Tristan, and one thing I wanted to ask you is that, is there a confidence that you have that you just, you're not afraid of contact anymore. You trust your defense, but it seems like you're getting deeper in the games, but yeah, you're more efficient too as well. So your, your walk rate's way down compared to last year. What's your mindset now this year going in that allowed you to become really, I think one of the top six horses in the game right now, and at least in the American league in terms of innings pitched. Uh, so I think my goal out there when I go out to pitch is to win. Uh, and I think a lot of what happened last year is I would go out there and I felt like I would be almost trying to miss bats or be perfect in the zone or just kind of working around the edge of the zone. And I would find myself ending up in long counts a lot of the time, or I'd make it to the fifth inning and I'd be at a hundred pitches already. And I felt like I was doing myself as a disservice. And I felt like I was almost doing my team a disservice because I wasn't getting as deep into games as I thought I should be. And even though I was pitching into the fifth inning and having these long at bats, guys weren't necessarily hitting all that well off me. Uh, when I would fall into trouble was because of the walks. And I kind of came into this year thinking, I'm going to try and get deep into games. I'm going to try and keep my team involved and I'm going to be in the zone. And from there, it's been up. It's nice. You know, I, we have James Smythe here who's, who does uh, great research for, for us on, on the Yes Network. You know, James, uh, things that jump out at me, I mean, he's sixth in innings pitch per game start, 6.3 innings, uh, 17 quality starts. His walk rate, as I said, 6.1% way down this year. What I'm seeing in a game score, you know, the old Bill, Bill James game score, he's got the sixth best game score, over 60.5 game score the, this year. I'm, I'm looking at a guy that probably should be getting some Cy Young Award, you know, uh, conversation, be in that conversation. Definitely a top 10 pitcher in the American League, maybe top five. James, what, what do you got? Absolutely. And also being having the fourth best opponent batting average, 202, only behind Cease, Verlander, and McClanahan. What jumps out with Tristan is uh, you have a great fastball without lighting up the radar gun. 92.5 is the average miles an hour, but a couple things. Great rise. 2.8 inches above average in vertical movement. So it's jumping on hitters a little more. That's something you get into a lot, Coney. And uh, Nestor Cortez, Christian Javier, Tristan, these are the kinds of pitchers who are able to get more out of their fastballs than other pitchers because of that. And the other thing, too, is great extension. In the top 15% of pitchers in, in extension, re you're releasing the ball closer to home plate and there's less time for the hitters to react is that is that part of a stride thing with you uh i mean i think it's a i think it's a leverage thing i think it's almost how i've always been taught to throw uh you really want to reach out to your target to try and put the ball where you're where you want it and i think me having good levers and i haven't necessarily changed anything from when i was little to now i think it's just kind of my 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 build and my stats that's just how stuff works you know, you know, Tristan, I always ask this question. You know, I was a kid who signed out of high school. I had a chance to go to college. I know you did, too. Let me take me back to your high school days, you know, your Royal Palm Beach High School. You got a chance to go to Vanderbilt. How tough was that decision back then? And, and take me through that just a little bit about, you know, what, what it's like for maybe other kids out there that might be in a similar spot that you were back then. I mean, going into the whole draft process, I wasn't even necessarily thinking about Major League Baseball. I was really just blessed to be uh, – with the opportunity to, to go to Vanderbilt and get an opportunity to, to receive a scholarship there. And I think just going through the draft process, it was more looking at my future and, and what I really wanted to accomplish with baseball. 
Uh, and it was more, I just felt like getting drafted was an opportunity that I, I couldn't overlook. Uh, as bad as I wanted to go to school, as much as I, I wanted to develop there and the program that I chose to, to further my career at, it was just something I couldn't pass up over Major League Baseball, vice versa. I couldn't pass up Major League Baseball over that. Since, since you've been drafted, you've been a much hyped about prospect going through the Cleveland organization. You break into the majors in 20 guys who have done it at the major league level. I've never done it, but this is what I feel, right? You have like, you have different levels of confidence. You break through the big leagues. Like, okay, I'm a big league pitcher. You find a way to figure out what clicks as a young pitcher said, Oh yeah, I can, I can hang with these guys. I can, I belong here. And now in a season like this, you probably have that mindset going in that I can be elite, but you are now producing results that tell you you're elite. So from that, what have you picked up mentally and taking with you moving forward to the postseason and beyond? Uh, I mean, I think I said it to David earlier. Uh, I think a lot of guys, when they're in the minor leagues, their only goal is to get to the big leagues. Uh, so a lot of the times you're just out there competing. And I think a lot of times guys get to the big leagues and they see all these guys that they watch on TV, that they watch growing up, and their immediate thought process is, I'm a big leaguer, but these are the big leaguers that I saw. And I think a lot of my adjustment period, especially when it comes to competing in postseason games, competing in games where you need to win, is to not look at it like he's a guy that's been in the big leagues for 10, 15 years. It's more, I'm a big leaguer, his, he's a big leaguer, here's my best stuff. And I think once I got to that level where I'm competing at my highest level, uh, it's kind of allowed me to, to go at guys uh, with a full head of steam. And if they beat me, they beat me. But if they don't, I know I put my best foot forward. You guys went on this great 16-2 and two sprint to turn what looked like was going to be a tight AL Central race at the beginning of September into a runaway. You had, you're coming off a great 13-strikeout game against the White Sox, part of that big run that put this thing away. Second best of your career, only behind a 14-strikeout game against the White Sox back in August. Are these the kinds of games that give you confidence as you go into the postseason thinking, I can do it on this stage. So I'd say for me, the, the strikeouts are huge, but I think in both of those games, I went into the eighth inning. And I think for me, that's more invaluable to a team. Uh, me being able to eat innings, me being able to get deep into games proves that as a starting pitcher, I'm, I'm doing my job and I'm giving that, my team a chance to win the game, especially if I'm pitching that deep. So I've been, I've been trying to get to that, that kind of mental capacity and that mental state where I'm out there competing from pitch one to pitch 95, 100, 100 and whatever it is. And hopefully I'm getting into the eighth, hopefully even into the ninth inning. Fewer pitches per inning this year from about 16 and a half to around 14 and a half, which doesn't sound like much. But when you add it up over many starts, over many pitches, over the entire course of a season, it's a huge difference. Definitely. I agree with that. I think it's, I think it's a long season and we're getting towards the tail end of it. More Tone of the Slab in moments, but I need to tell you about our good friends at Bear Burger. Yes, Bear Burger is a burger joint, but they are not the type to be bogged down by labels. Their menus filled with options for everybody, <laughs> regardless of your preferences. So if you're even 110% vegan, or if you're craving one of their elk burgers, they're not going to judge you at all. At Bear Burger, there is only one restriction that you're going to be limited to. Food that tastes absolutely amazing. There is something for everyone at Bear Burger. You can create your own favorite burger, and <laughs> they take burgers extremely seriously with their wide variety. It is an awesome menu from top to bottom. You can build your own creation. Let them know that John Boy sent you, 
and then tweet it to at Bear Burger for a chance to win a Bear Burger gift card. Lunch specials run from 12 to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. You get a choice of a select sandwich served with fries for $14.95. If you're looking for a great family night out and need some takeout dining, you can check out the family special on bearburger.com or your favorite ordering platform. Choose up to two cubby meals, three select burgers or shakes for $49.95. You check out their website for details. And they have one of the best happy hours in New York City going these days. The Bear Burger Kitchen and Bar Happy Hour features $1 PBRs. They have $5 Ouch. mules and martinis. You get half-off bottles of wine and available for seven full hours. Seven hours every Monday through Friday from noon to 7 p.m. Click the link in the description to find yourself at the best happy hour, tastiest burger joint, and overall great spot. Order.bearburger.com. Again, you can tweet it to at Bear Burger for a chance to win a Bear Burger gift card by letting them know that John Boy sent you. Christian, could you tell me a little bit, not only on your development, but you know, I'm fascinated with some of the, the, the toys of the trade nowadays. I missed out on that in my career, whether it's you know, spin rate, the Rapsodo machine, the high-speed cameras. Is there anything that you use start to start or anything that, that kind of a light bulb effect went on for you and your development and some of the new technology or the analytics that helped you or not? Are you just sort of a, a feel guy when you pitch? I'd say, I'd say when I'm out there competing, I'm definitely a field guy, but I'd say when it comes to me developing who I was as a pitcher, especially coming up through the minors, I'm kind of in between. Cause I think there's a lot of stuff on, on the baseball field that numbers can help you with and numbers can tell you, and you're able to kind of visualize it and do it in practice. But I think when you're out there competing in the bottom of the fourth with runners on second and third, it's not going to be easy for you to look up. What was my spin rate on that last pitch? So I think I've found this, this kind of fine balance of uh, figuring out what works in my delivery uh, figuring out what my pitch shape looks like, uh, and then figuring out what my heater feels like or what my, what my off speed looks like when it feels good. And then once I see those numbers, I'm able to come into the dugout and say, Hey, my slider doesn't necessarily feel, feel right. Uh, I threw one to Correa or whoever it may be. And it felt a little loopy, you put too good of a swing on it. And they'll say, Hey, look, well, we looked at the numbers, uh, and it does look like your, your plots are a little different. Uh, so for me, it's it's a lot about just trying to find consistency in my pitch shapes and stuff that I can feel and and not necessarily quantify with with numbers and figure out a way to explain that to the people around me. And then they're able to give me the numbers that I'm able to look. OK, that's hard data. I can look at this and I can revert back to this when stuff doesn't actually feel the best. Well, I love that answer. The combination of both the feel, the using both sides of it and not getting jammed up when you're competing, when you're in the, the heat of the battle, you just kind of trust your instinct and your guts. I love I love that answer. One of the best answers to that question I've heard. So, you know, you, 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 I think the efficiency that you've shown this year, uh, I love the fact that you want to get deeper in the games. You know, you're a horse. You're one of the premier horses. You're averaging 6.3 innings per start in an era where most, most uh, teams don't want their starting pitchers to go the third time through the order. You're going three times through the order, right? And you're proud of that. And I think that's, yeah. that's great for the game. Uh, you know, you, you, as an old school starting pitcher myself, I love to see that mentality. You're, you're not looking over your shoulder at the bullpen. You want to stay in that, that ball game. I think that's what, that's what makes you special. So, so keep that, keep that mentality. Definitely. I, I've appreciated watching you this year. Thank you. I appreciate that, David. Kristen, has there been an individual who's encouraged you to have that type of mentality, to have that mindset, to try and go eight, nine innings? Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's anything that's developed recently. I think growing up as a, as a 
high school ball, ball player or even playing the travel circuit at 12, 13. I always wanted to be the guy pitching the big games, uh, mainly because I think why not? Why wouldn't you want to be the guy on the mound when it's bottom of the ninth, uh, full count, bases loaded? I think that's what every little kid dreams of. And I think being able to put yourself in those situations consistently or wanting to compete in those situations is, is I think, the highest level of competition. And I think that's what, as a baseball player, I strive to, to look for. And I read that you said growing up, your father taught you the game. Which big leaguers did your dad tell you to pay attention to as a young kid? Uh, big leaguers that I watched very, very thoroughly. I watched the rocket a lot. I was a big, I was a big Roger Clemens fan and I was a big Pedro fan. I love how they attack guys. I love, I, I think I had like enough. I had this love affair with power pitchers. Cause it's, it's just something about them putting their best foot forward or almost letting the hitter know, like, this is my best stuff. And if, and if you can't hit it, you're going to have a long day. Cause I'm going to sit here and I'm going to do it to you over and over and over. They weren't out there trying to miss bats. They weren't out there trying to fool guys. They were out there kind of letting everybody know that they were better than them. And I, as a competitor, it was something that I admired as a kid. And it was something that I always tried to kind of incorporate into my game. Justin mentioned your dad. Uh, there is, I, I heard about a drill that he had you do with your little brother where he would stand in and this is how, would, how did you learn how to pitch inside? Uh, so one of my coaches, when I was, I'm, I probably was, I I'd say the one that, that helped me the, the biggest was Case and Gabbard, my, my coach, uh, my senior in, in high school, where he kind of told me, if you want to pitch in the big leagues, you have to let guys not feel comfortable at the plate. And the way you do that is to kind of back them off the plate and show them that you own the, the whole, the whole plate. Uh, so the drill that my dad and my brother and I used to do where, he would put us on the sidewalk and I'd throw my, my bullpens. And this is when we were real young. I was probably like 10, nine or 10. So my brother's probably six or seven at this point. Uh, and he would literally set up inside to catch my bullpen. And he had my brother standing there with a bat. And he's like, don't swing. Tristan, I need you to hit this pitch inside. And he'd set it up almost like on his hip. And then he'd be like, don't hit your brother. And he'd tell my brother not to move. And then, I mean, it was a pretty effective drill because it taught me to, to go in there with confidence. And I think once I got to a point where I learned how effective uh, making people uncomfortable at the plate was, I tried to incorporate it into my game more. That's awesome. Uh, we, we always love hearing guys talk about their, their upbringing through baseball, certain drills that were, you know, for lack of a better term, drilled into their head and into their <laughs> rhythm and, and how, how they were able to put in those 10,000 hours, so to speak. Um, obviously pay dividends for you. I think those long journeys to pro life and major league life have paid off for a lot of your teammates in 2022. I, I said David uh, to David before 16 players made their big league debuts on this team this season. And now you're, you're winning the division here. What makes this young clubhouse tick behind the scenes, Tristan? I think I think, and I think you've said it, uh, we have 16, 16 new guys that have been in the clubhouse in and out. Uh, and I think the biggest thing for our clubhouse has been consistency, regardless of who's coming in, regardless of how long they're here for. I think we play the same brand of baseball. And I think when guys come up here, they know that and they come up here and they play their butts off. And I think you see it when you see guys have immediate success up here, or you see guys come up and struggle for a little bit, but it doesn't necessarily phase them because they know they have guys around them that are working just as hard as them. Uh, and they have guys that are in the trenches with them. David, what sticks out to you when you see this, this Cleveland offense that Tristan has had a front row seat to watch 
every day because they operate a little bit differently from the the majority of the offenses that we've seen around the major leagues. They work counts. They they don't strike out often when they get on the bases. They they take off. They're they're constantly moving. From from a pitcher's perspective, both of you guys. I mean, I know they're your teammates, Tristan, but David as well. Like from a pitcher's perspective, what makes this uh, uh, offense? so imposing or maybe what's the biggest challenge in going up against a lineup like Cleveland's David you can go first yeah yeah, it's it's a great example you know I mean I I just see a bunch of athletes all over the field and on the mound when I see Tristan pitch I see an athlete you know that that moves well that that is athletic on the mound I see it all over the field that's why I asked Tristan that too that that it goes hand in hand confidence on the mound goes hand in hand with balls put in play that get converted to outs whether it's uh, Jimenez or, or Rosario or Miles Straw in center field, I see a bunch of athletes running around the field, and that translates to on the base pass too. Two-way players, they catch the ball, they run the bases, they put the ball in play. Uh, you know, I, that's what I see. I see a bunch of guys running around the field uh, that, that really have a lot of athleticism to me, and that pays off in a number of different ways. Uh, and certainly, you know, offensively, it poses some problems too because you, they're hard to strike out you know and, and, and don't get me wrong they have some great players too I mean Jose Ramirez is an MVP caliber player and uh, you know it's certainly uh, Jimenez is having a, an MVP caliber season too really if you think about his war his overall war ranking so I, I, does that build into your confidence uh, Tristan I mean you know you know when the ball's put in play that these guys are out they're going to run it down I think so I think from a defensive perspective I, I have the utmost confidence in them Regardless of where the ball's hit, regardless of how hard it's hit, I always think it's going to be made. It's either going to be an out or I know that the guy's not going to get an extra back. And as a pitcher, I think there's this kind of calmness that, that sets over me when I know even if I give up a double in the gap, there's not going to be an error in the outfield where the guy ends up on third. Or even if there's a runner on first and I give up a, a hard hit ball, I know that I can stand on the mound and the worst case scenario, I might have second and third. Uh, and then I think vice versa, I think, as a pitcher trying to face our, our lineup, it's never, you're never comfortable as a starter, as a reliever, you can never come in and be like, Oh, I'm, I might have an easy inning here. You're probably, you're out there consistently fighting from inning one to inning seven. And then once your bullpen gets in the game, we're out there trying to wear those guys down. We're out there. I think we just have such good at bats that it makes pitchers feel like they have to be perfect. If you walk somebody and you give up a base hit, that's automatically a runner on third to a degree. Uh, I think, guys feel like they get into this this certain level where you can't make a mistake to hitter number six because if hitter number six gets on and number seven is going to do his job and if number seven doesn't do it number eight is going to do his job and if we get back to the top it's it's damage so I think it's guys going out there and feeling like they have to beat the guy that's in front of them currently and if they can't do that they have to worry about it and I think mentally it, it takes it's wear and tear on pitchers Tristan, you've been around your manager, Terry Francona, for a few seasons now. This is an individual who's been managing for close to 25 years now. It's t- tough to believe, but, I mean, he was managing when David was playing. Let's, let's, let's put it out there. Um, how, how does a guy like Terry Francona get the best out of this young group? I think it's a, I think it's a respect thing. I think everybody comes into this clubhouse knowing who Terry Francona is, and he never acts like he's a Hall of Fame manager. He acts like he's a manager that's going to come talk to you. He's going to have personal personal conversations with each and every one of us. And I think that we all just enjoy playing for him. 
because we know what the game means to him. And we know that if we play the game the right way, we should win ball games, And that's what he likes to do. So we go out there, we play the game the right way. And I think you're seeing the, the, the fruits of our labor. You guys like being doubted? We love it. We love it because then I think teams come in with, with a little bit of extra breeze in their staff and they, they think we're going to be a pushover and they get midway through the game and they're like, wow, we got to lock it in now. And we've been locked in since the week prior. I love it. I think, uh, I think we're going to see that flair, that flavor in October. I feel like you guys want the division. People are applauding you for that. But when people, you know, it comes down to people making their postseason predictions it's going to, you know, you might be an afterthought there. And I'm, I'm hoping that you guys are able to continue your brand of baseball and, and continue to prove people wrong because it's exciting to watch you guys for the reasons that you were just explaining between uh, players like yourself and Bieber at the top of the rotation, the bullpen, the way the offense plays its brand of baseball. It's a fun time to watch Cleveland Guardians baseball. So uh, best of luck to you here as we enter October. Congratulations on a breakout season, and thanks for spending some time with us, Tristan. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, David. Yep. Thank you, James. Have a great postseason. Yeah, go get them. Have a great postseason. Thanks. I Good will. Luck. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Come a long way from the Arizona Spring Training House, my friend. Congrats. <laughs> Be well. We got, we got some more time. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> All right. Take care, bud. Bye, guys. <laughs> Tristan McKenzie is just an impressive individual to talk to. A young kid who feel like knows exactly what he wants to do on the mound, but he encompasses the the energy of this Guardians baseball team. And I tell you what, guys, I think people are doubting Cleveland even after they win the division title. I think they can make some noise. It's going to be tough because they may run into the Astros in the division series, just the way things are laid out there. But I think they have what it takes to really wreck a lot of postseason brackets here on October. Yeah, I agree. And it's kind of an old school style. You know, you mentioned Terry Francona, the manager, but he allows these kids to get deeper in the games. You know, Tristan McKenzie's got the sixth highest rated innings pitch per game started. And at an efficient rate, as James Smythe pointed out, uh, under 93 pitches to pitch into the seventh inning is pretty good. So Terry Francona is going to allow that to happen. Him and Shane Bieber, when you think about those two at the top, one-two matching up with maybe it's Verlander and Framber Valdez, however it shakes down. Those are great matchups. Nobody wants to face Shane Bieber and Tristan McKenzie one-two. I'll tell you that right now. That They are a tough, tough chance. And if they get rolling, they're going to get deep into the game. And if they get a lead and hand it over to Class A, it's lights out. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's Cleveland's got a roadmap. There's a roadmap for them to do this. And it goes right through the old school way, the starting pitching. Wild card series against whether it's Toronto, Tampa, Seattle, maybe Baltimore, if they can make a run, but that's less likely. You're handing the ball games one and two to Bieber and McKenzie. They're eating up more innings than they normally would in a, in a typical five-game stretch, maximizing your, your ace starters in the postseason and shortening the game to get the ball to Class A. That trio – handling more innings in a postseason series can push them a long way. And it's not just Emmanuel Classe either. Let's not lose sight of that. We've mentioned that before on past episodes on Tone the Slab. The Guardians have the best bullpen ERA since the All-Star break. You have Classe, you have Karinczak, uh, Trevor Steffen, or, or a lot of others. So you combine what James just said between 
the inning length that the starters are giving makes the game shorter. The bullpen is allowed to come in and do their thing. And if you think about the innings that those starters have eaten up up until this point, those bullpen arms, they're still fresh. You know, they're not as taxed as other teams heading down the stretch here, heading into October. So they, you know, they, they definitely have more mileage on them as we get ready for the postseason here. I think the Guardians are going to surprise a lot of people as they have so far this season. I think you're going to see it on a national level now. Uh, youngest team in baseball winning the division. Really impressive. Congratulations to them. All right. This week in pitching history, James Smythe, what do you have for us? All right. October 2nd, 1968, 54 years ago, Sunday. We're getting into the time of year. We're getting to the end of the regular season. Now we're getting into the world in the postseason and World Series events. So 54 years ago, Sunday, Bob Gibson of the Cardinals just finished one of the greatest regular seasons in baseball history, a 1.12 ERA in over 304 innings with 13 shutouts. He gets the ball in game one of the World Series against the Tigers and sets a World Series record with 17 strikeouts in a five-hit shutout. He had 14 through eight innings, one away from tying Sandy Koufax's 1963 record of 15 strikeouts in a World Series game against the Yankees. So in the ninth, Gibson strikes out Al Kaline, a Hall of Famer to tie the record, Norm Cash to break the record, and then Willie Horton striking out the side for a cherry on top, 17 Ks, Gibson and the Cardinals lost the World Series in Game 7, but still one of the great seasons ever and one of the great World Series performances ever. All of the top three strikeout games in World Series history were on October 2nd. <laughs> Gibson 17 strikeouts, the Koufax 15 strikeout game, that was the old record, and the record before that, Carl Erskine of the Dodgers against the Yankees in 1953 when he had 14, all on October 2nd this week in pitching history. I feel like we're losing something, not having postseason games on October 2nd man, or World Series games. It's, we'd have to shrink the field considerably, now. gentlemen. That was the last year in 1968 before mm -hmm. they went to divisional play. It used, 1968 was the last year of this team won the AL, this team won the NL. You go right to the World Series. It's crazy, right? I, I even remember back in uh, in the '80s when you just have the LCS. You go right to the LCS and then to the World Series after that. So you know the divisional play, and then now obviously the wild card card era. And started in '95, the Yankees' first wild card team. So yeah, it has changed quite a bit since the days of go right to the World Series, win the pennant, go right to the World Series. Hey, it's not a bad thing. We get more baseball, so. <laughs> In this case, pretty much a full month. So uh, Bob Gibson, obviously terrific. That 1968 season, legendary. And that was the cherry on top for him in that World Series game. Guys, more Toe in the Slab is coming up. But the NFL action is in full swing at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. We are talking touchdowns, big plays, even bigger wins. And new customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do win. That's not enough. Everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Right now, for every leg that you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100%. With payouts bigger than ever, why bet on football anywhere else than DraftKings? To make things even sweeter, you can throw down a stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day all season long. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now to use promo code SLAB to get $200 in free bets if your team wins when you place a $5 bet 
on any football game. That's code SLAB, S-L-A-B, only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Three up, three down, guys, as we close out the show this week. Last full week of, of the regular season, some performances probably stick out more than others as maybe teams fight per, for positioning. Who do you guys spotlighting here? David, who do you have? Well, you know, I think it's not a moment too soon on the Yankee side for Luis Severino to come back and pitch as well as he has over his two starts so far. And even though he's been limited on his pitch count, uh, he threw 75 pitches in his last start. He's got just enough time to get built up to a full start. So he'll probably get to 90 to 100 pitches in his next start. But the stuff was all there. And his two starts back, he's throwing free and easy effortlessly, which is what he was talking about in his rehab the whole time. He was very upset that they slow played him. They put him on the 60-day IL. They bought more time. And he wasn't happy about it. He felt like he was ready a lot sooner. He's proved that. He's got a three-pitch mix that I think is as good as it's been all year long. The shape of his slider, I think, is really, really good. Better than it's been all year. It's almost a two-plane slider now with vertical and horizontal movement. It's just the right shape. It's tunneling off of his fastball. And his fastball's been up in the upper 90s again. Looks like the Luis Severino of old. So what a welcome sight for the Yankees and much needed, too. I think he's one of the top three starters they have right now. I think Jamison Tyone probably is your fourth starter going into post season so Gary Cole Nestor Nasty Nestor and now you've got Luis Severino in that mix it changes everything for the Yankees moving forward because he's got guts that's the thing about Seve when he's on the mound he he just got you know uh, I used the term onions last night Bill Raftery the best the great the Hall of Fame basketball announcer talks about onions he's got the kids got onions you know, that's what Luis Severino has he has onions and that's a guy you want on the mound because you know he won't scare he's fearless on the mound and he's got his stuff back. Yeah, he looked sharp against a quality Blue Jays offense in that start on Monday in Toronto. But you're right. He's been through enough big game experiences to probably know what works and what doesn't now and how to handle himself as well. And I tell you what, he's more than well rested, has 60 plus days off to, you know, to his dismay for sure. But if he comes out and is as effective as we expect him to be and what we believe he can be Yankees are going to look pretty smart for keeping him on the sidelines and having that type of fresh arm at their disposal in a playoff series, especially coming off the injuries, the surgeries that he came off of. It may turn up to be the, the sound approach here and the Yankees could look very smart in the end. Luis Severino has more than enough ability to light the world on fire in October. It's going to be exciting to see here. Uh, James, who do you have? Well, our guest, Tristan McKenzie, was great, and I'm going to be looking ahead to his next start Wednesday night against Tyler Glasnow and the Rays. Glasnow's first game since June 14th of last year because of Tommy John surgery. So we have McKenzie on this great run, Cleveland hosting Tampa, a big pennant race game with, as with the Rays in, in the wild card race, and it's the return of Tyler Glasnow. So that's the, the game I'm circling on my calendar this week. Dan Rourke, our producer's first round pick for best pitches before the season, has just enough time to make an impact here in 2022. So, yeah, Tyler Glass now making his debut. We'll see what type of uh, run value that fastball brings in, in probably one start, right? Uh, Dan, we are not going to let you live that down until the next pitch draft next season. <laughs> <laughs> 
There he is. You're doing a terrific job, man. Making things run smoothly here. But yeah, Tyler Glass now on the bump uh, for the Rays. And we talked about the Guardians being playoff bound. The Rays, obviously, right now, as we look at the standings, a half game up on the Mariners for that wild card spot, that second wild card spot. Seattle's trying to hold off Baltimore. It looks like they're going to. They have a three and a half game lead at the time we're recording this over Baltimore. And that kind of leads me into my pitcher for three up, three down, because look, Baltimore is probably going to fall short of qualifying for the postseason. It would take an extraordinary collapse by the Mariners, more so than the Orioles playing well at this point with a three and a half game lead and a week left to play. But the important thing to highlight is that they're probably going to be finishing uh, at or above 500. And that's a huge success for them given where they've been in recent seasons. And you see the youth movement that we were talking about early this season, but it's come with guys that we weren't even talking about. Kyle Bradish has come in, has made an impact as a rookie. He took it to the Astros over the weekend through eight and two thirds, gave up just two hits, struck out 10. That was his second start against Houston. The second time that he threw eight innings of shutout baseball. Uh, he did it on August 26th as well, held Houston to two hits over eight scoreless innings. So Kyle Bradish, obviously a much hyped prospect for the Orioles, finishing strong. The Orioles hopefully can finish strong, maybe make it interesting in the final few days. But overall, you have to tip your cap to the Baltimore Orioles. That youth movement is going to be right there at the gate of 2023 to start that season off. So it's obviously time to really take them seriously as they turn the page to 2023. But I, I think it's a, a great job, a great sign that the Orioles have some of these young guys stepping up big time uh, in September when games still matter. So tip my hat to Kyle Bradish here. All right, guys, that's going to do it here. Next time we talk to one another, we're only going to have a day or two left of the regular season. And uh, I feel like everything could be in place, but you never know. The NL East could still be up for grabs. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, David, are you are, you have one more Sunday night gig coming up this weekend? Or are you guys finished? We we do. No, we have the Mets in Atlanta, uh, the, uh. in Atlanta this weekend, which has had obviously a huge series, which also is subject to the weather as the hurricane moves through. There's a lot of talk about a washout in Atlanta this weekend coming up, and whether that series might be moved somewhere else to a neutral site. It's such a big series, so much at stake. The Braves have three sellouts. Already uh, uh, sold out, sold out crowds there for that that great weekend series against the Mets and great pitching matchup. So everything's up in the air. But yeah, we're supposed to be Sunday night, and it looks like it's going to be Scherzer against uh, possibly Max Fried. So you know, we're not that could be the Sunday night game. Uh, so we'll, so we'll wait and see how the pitching shakes out and how the weather shakes out. All right, two Maxes on the mounds. Nice. Everything else maybe up in the air, including where David will be. In the weekend and the NL East. We'll have to wait and see, guys. Uh, fun as always. Enjoy doing this with you guys. Um, have a you know great rest of the week as we close down this regular season. Big thank you to Tristan McKenzie for stopping by the show. Big thank you to our fabulous producer, Daniel Allen Rourke. Reminder, new episodes of the show, they drop each and every week. Please rate, review, subscribe. It's the best way you can show your support for the show. For David, for James, for our producer, Dan, and myself, Justin, we will talk to you next week here on Tone of the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care. 